0: Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell and episode 14. Now, for this episode, I'm going to give the usual heads up. The content and information that you're going to hear may be triggering or upsetting. And so listener discretion is advised. You're going to hear about real victims, real cases, real perpetrators and their behavior at real crime scenes. And there are going to be some graphic details throughout this series. Unfortunately, it comes with the territory. Murder is distressing. Victims being killed and harmed is a truly terrible business. So in my last episode, I interviewed Sharon Boyle. Sharon's interview was illuminating, wasn't it? And by the way, you may have caught that Sharon's surname is Boyle, but she's not related to Detective Sergeant Deso Boyle or Detective Inspector John Boyle, who were the arresting and interviewing officers that I talked about in episode nine, just in case anyone was wondering. Now, as you all know, I put the victims at the centre of all that I do, but I'm also interested in psychology and prevention. Therefore, it's really important to understand the biopsychosocial development of a perpetrator, particularly in their formative years and the decisions that they take. You'll know that my background is in forensic and legal psychology, and of course, psychology plays a role here. And what Sheram revealed about the domestic abuse and child abuse and John Sutcliffe's misogyny and horrific attitude towards women would have made a huge impact on P.S., particularly as he targeted him and the fact that he called him, in inverted commas, mummy's boy, etc., because John Sutcliffe was an alpha male. And it's probably why he also said what he did about being proud of P.S. and what a grand, lovable son he was, despite the fact he was a serial killer who obliterated and mutilated and tortured women and killed many and harmed so many more. It's also interesting that P.S. changed his name in prison using his mother's maiden name. You see, he was happy to use women when it suited him, when it was convenient to him. And I'm getting the sense that that's what he did with Sonia too. But more about P.S. and his psychology and profile in a later episode. In this episode, I want to talk about the Byford Report, the findings and the recommendations, and my analysis of it, and also my Freedom of Information Act request. That's right, I've had some lines of inquiry out, and this is one of them, and I'm excited to tell you more about it. So I've mentioned the Byford Report in a previous episode, and you're probably wondering, well, what was it and who commissioned it? Well, post-trial and in the bid to quell rising public criticism, the government ordered a number of inquiries, the Byford Report, and then there was the West Yorkshire Police Internal Inquiry under the Deputy Chief Constable, which was called the Sampson Report. The Home Secretary at the time, William Whitelaw, requested Sir Lawrence Byford to undertake the review on behalf of Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabularies, rather than a full public inquiry, as according to his private secretary, Colin Waters, the Home Secretary wanted to ensure that the police were, in inverted commas, not criticised, and that lessons were learned and made available across the police services to assist future investigations. Now remember that aim and that mission. And on January the 19th, 1982, the Home Secretary addressed Parliament and said this, I asked him, he's referring to Lord Byford, to report on any lessons which might be learnt from the conduct of the investigation and what should be made known to police forces generally. Mr. Byford was assisted in his review by the external advisory team he'd set up in November 1980. He was also able to take account of views put to him about this tragic case by relatives of the victims who greatly appreciated the opportunity to voice their misgivings. Now, the report in its entirety was 156 pages long. However, when it was completed in 1982, only a summary of his findings were made public in Parliament. Those 156 pages were in fact reduced to 1,200 words. Now, that's roughly six A4 pages. The rest was kept under lock and key at the Home Office, Astonishingly, it was only in 2006 that the bulk of the Byford report, paid for using taxpayers' money, was finally published by the Home Office following a Freedom of Information request. Then in 2016, following pressure from the Sunday Times, a further four pages were released, which I'll tell you about. So six pages of the Byford report had never been published. This was a surprise to me, along with the fact that the full report was never published. So I didn't know about that, and I didn't know it took such a long time for the report to be published. Well, at the start of January 2021, I emailed my FOIA request to the Home Office and made the case that 40 years on, the public had a right to know what was in those missing pages and that the learning was key for all to understand. Now, I'll read you my email, and it was dated January fourteenth, 2021. To whom it may concern, on June 1st, 2006, the UK Home Office released Inspector of Constabulary Sir Lawrence Byford's 1981 report of an official inquiry into the murders and attacks on lone females in the northeast of England committed by P.S. Part of the document entitled Description of Suspects, Photo Fits, and Other Assaults remains censored by the Home Office. I am writing to request that you release the part of the document entitled Description of Suspects, Photo Fits and Other Assaults. By way of background, I worked at New Scotland Yard in SO11, the Directorate of Intelligence, and set up the sexual offences section in the wake of the Byford report to identify serial rape, murder and abduction. This report wasn't available to me at the time and I wish it had been. I went on to be the head of the Homicide Prevention Unit and the Association of Chief Police Officers and the Home Office's Violence Advisor. I truly believe that it's important that the real learning is promulgated in this case and that the victims and potential victims receive answers finally. It's 40 years since P.S. was arrested and he is now dead. Many of those involved in the case are now dead. It's time that there were a thorough independent analysis of all the material so that the lessons can truly be learned by everyone, not just by a few, and that the victims are treated with respect and dignity. Withholding this information only ever benefited P.S., and that should never be the case. He's gone now and it's time the right decisions were made in this case. Being open and transparent about what happened and what was known and the lessons to be learned is the right course of action to take. It's for the benefit of many, including policing, the victims and wider society, that there is openness and transparency. Please consider my request with due care and consideration and release these additional parts of the document to me. Only then can people truly move on from what happened in the knowledge that the true lessons will be learned. I look forward to hearing from you respectfully, Laura. Now, I did receive an automated response on January the 14th, thanking me for contacting the Home Office and acknowledging receipt of my email. Now, on the Home Office website, it did say that I would receive acknowledgement within 24 hours and that they aim to provide information requested within 20 working days as specified under the FOI Act. Therefore, I expected to hear back on February the 11th and marked it in my diary. However, I heard nothing. And so I contacted the FOIA unit at the Home Office again, and they replied with this. Thank you for your email of the 14th of January, in which you asked for part of Sir Lawrence Byford's report into the police handling of the Yorkshire R-Word case. Entitled Description of Suspects, Photo Fits and Other Assaults, your request is being handled as a request for information under the Freedom of Information Act 2000. We're considering your request. Although the FOIA carries a presumption in favour of disclosure, it provides exemptions which may be used to withhold information in specified circumstances. Some of these exemptions, referred to as qualified exemptions, are subject to a public interest test. This test is used to balance the public interest in disclosure against the public interest in favour of withholding information. The FOIA allows us to exceed the 20 working day response target where we need to consider public interest tests fully. The information which you have requested is being considered under the exemptions in Section 31 and 38 of the FOIA, which relate to law enforcement and to health and safety. These are qualified exemptions, and to consider the public interest test fully, we need to extend the 20 working day response period. We now aim to let you have a full response by the 11th of March. Well, that to me was reassuring, actually, that it was being looked at properly. It wasn't just a no. But March the 11th was marked in my diary and it came and went, and so at the end of the day, I emailed them again. And then I received an email on March the 15th saying that they were prepared to send me the pages, although not in their entirety. So I was really optimistic, progress and success. And so I'm going to reveal what was contained in those missing pages. That's the drumroll piece. But before I do that, I want to give you the background information first to the Byford report and tell you about the summary conclusions and recommendations that were made. So the inquiry led by Lord Byford took five months to complete. Now their work probed the investigation led by Assistant Chief Constable Oldfield, Superintendent Dick Holland, and Chief Constable Gregory, which included interviewing junior and senior detectives from Yorkshire, Manchester, Lancashire and Northumbria Police Services. Effectively, the inquiry found that the detectives made major errors of judgment. It said, during the five years it took to apprehend P.S., and I'm quoting there. Now, I just want to draw your attention to the timescale noted here, the five years, Well, it simply wasn't five years. The focus should have been on the period 1969 to 1981. That's 12 years. P.S. was 23 when he was arrested for going equipped with a hammer and when he attacked the prostitute just three weeks before. Well, Lord Byford later acknowledged that as he concluded that P.S. had been responsible for multiple attacks on women for which he had not been charged. Lord Byford had warned the Home Secretary that there was a, in inverted commas, unexplained lull in PS's criminal activities between 1969, when he first came to police attention after being questioned for hitting a prostitute over the head with a rock concealed in a sock, and the first officially recognised assault and murder in 1975. And he said this... We feel it is highly improbable that the crimes in respect of which PS has been charged and convicted are the only ones attributed to him. This feeling is reinforced by examining the details of a number of assaults on women since 1969, which in some ways clearly fall into the established pattern of PS's overall modus operandi. It is my firm conclusion that between 1969 and 1980, P.S. was probably responsible for many attacks on women, which he has not admitted, not only in West Yorkshire and Manchester, but also in other parts of the country. Yes, you see, this is absolutely key and vital information, but it's information that the Home Secretary never mentioned when he briefed parliamentarians. And having said that, Remember that the report was not published in its totality. Among the sections that were redacted was one entitled Description of Suspects, Photofits and Other Assaults. Since then, efforts to force the Home Office to reveal its contents have continued. The newspaper The Sunday Times published an article on the 28th of August 2016 stating that the Byford report contained information that PS may have committed up to 13 other offences – that he was active for a longer period, and that when the Home Secretary briefed Parliament, he didn't include the fact that it was believed PS had committed other offences. The Mail, and I hate to quote them here continued to exert pressure, and on August the 29th, they led with a story about the other potentially linked 13 offences, and that they believed it then led officials to request that West Yorkshire Police contact the 13 women named in the redacted section of the report to see whether they would object to its publication. And at the same time, interestingly, West Yorkshire Police's cold case team looked at those 13 cases again, and remember This was 2016. That's 35 years later. Now, I've included the links to both the Sunday Times and the Mail articles in the show notes so you can read them for yourself. And I've always strongly believed that he committed other offences right from the start of diving into this case. And so the lull or hiatus that Lord Byford spoke about was not a real lull. And so these six pages in particular, entitled Description of Suspects, Photofits and Other Assaults, are the pages that I, and it seems many others, desperately wanted to see. And I'm going to tell you about what was contained within those pages that the Home Office sent to me very soon. First, though, I need to give you the background context. And so I'm going to highlight the summary conclusions from the Byford report and break them down, as well as the recommendations. Firstly, as I said, the report found that there were major errors of judgment by the police and some inefficiencies in the conduct of the operation at various levels. Secondly, poor judgment was also found particularly relating to the tunnel vision, focusing on the hoaxer tapes and letters and eliminating potential suspects, including P.S. on Accent alone. The report said, and I quote, The available evidence did not justify the conclusion that the author was the killer. Thirdly, that there was a backlog of unprocessed information in the incident room, which led to failure to connect vital pieces of information and intelligence. The incident room should have been the nerve centre, but it was overloaded with information and vital connections were not made, such as there were two index cards on PS that were not married together. Now, it's important here for balance and perspective that I give you an idea of the scale and scope of the investigation. And so I'm going to refer to figure seven in the Biford report, which listed the following. Total number of persons in the nominal index, 267,962. House to house inquiries, 33,719. Total number of actions, 115,297 Statement total 30,926 Total vehicle sighting in red light districts 5,468,514 Cross area sightings 21,231 Triple area sightings 1,223 Total vehicle inquiries, 158,206. And so this was a huge inquiry, the largest of its kind at the time. And that does need to be acknowledged here because the scale and scope was simply overwhelming. And that doesn't include the £5 note inquiry, the tyre print inquiry, the photo fits and so on. And I'm going to get to that. And so against this backdrop and context, Chief Constable Gregory did them no favours at all when he took a decision to spend one million pounds of taxpayers' money on a marketing campaign involving the tape and the handwriting from the letters at a time when they were already flooded with information that wasn't properly indexed. Now, this is a prime example of not clearing the ground from under your feet before you start a major new line of inquiry where there's no infrastructure to support that major line of inquiry. And that was, quite frankly, a recipe for disaster. And that's exactly what happened. Disaster. They were flooded with so much information that they couldn't process any of it. And also of note here is the triple vehicle index inquiry numbers. So the number for the triple vehicle inquiry was 1,223. Well, you see, that's much more manageable to me. And in my opinion, that should have been a line of inquiry that was prioritized. And we know that one man came up many times and that man was P.S. Again, you can be busy But are you busy with the right things, as my former Detective Chief Superintendent Johnny Godsave used to ask? The fourth was a key one which I've already highlighted. There was insufficient attention given to the common elements of the photo fits obtained from surviving women. And I've already mentioned this in episode four, but actually it's far worse than what I stated, and it connects directly to my Freedom of Information Act request, and so you're going to hear much more about this. The fifth key conclusion related to the fact that P.S. was interviewed as they stated in the report nine times between 1975 and 1981 before he was finally arrested in January 1981. It's clear that the attitudes of some of the officers were heavily influenced by the weight given to the tapes and letters and some officers were not proactive enough and were inadequately briefed before interviewing suspects. Well, as I mentioned, the report states that it was nine times. However, my analysis reveals that P.S. came to police attention at least 14 times if the 1969 attack and offence and the theft of tyres and the drink driving arrest are included. And then, of course, he was arrested by South Yorkshire police, interviewed and then charged. And so to my count, that's 14 and so in reality, and for the sake of full transparency and disclosure, there were 14 opportunities to stop him. And I'm going to dig into each interview and give you my breakdown momentarily. The last summary conclusion point was this, and I'll read it in full. The police worked diligently and conscientiously throughout the investigation. However, With hindsight, P.S. should have been identified as the prime suspect earlier on the facts associated with his various police interviews. Hmm. So I do take issue with the first part of this conclusion. The oh-but-didn't-they-still-do-a-good-job type attitude and didn't-they-work-hard? And I'm sure, by the way, that some of the team really did. However, like I said before, due to the direction of three senior officers in particular... Detective Superintendent Holland, Assistant Chief Constable Oldfield and Chief Constable Gregory, they were working hard on all the wrong things, in my opinion. And the Byford report states that he could have been identified from the interviews, which I agree with. But in reality, he could have been identified even before then. And the first few interviews should have confirmed it. And I'm being generous here. As we know, hindsight is twenty twenty but let me explain further. In episode four, I said that the latest he should have been identified and arrested was in 1977 after Marilyn Moore's attack. But in reality, if they had done the basics right and listened to the surviving women, they actually possibly could have prevented Wilma's murder and all of those thereafter. The stakes were as high as they could be in this case, and I'll tell you more about it as it relates directly to my FOIA requests and information that I didn't have before. But firstly, I want to give you a sense of the attitude that Lord Lawrence Byford went into the review and investigation with. My inquiry was not there to produce scapegoats so much as to produce the lessons for the future. Sir Lawrence Byford was instructed by the government to investigate what had gone wrong. Well, you see, in my opinion, accountability and transparency are key. And the families and survivors deserve that at the very least, don't you think? Why should the senior officers taking those decisions not be held to account? They're paid a salary to make those decisions. And so why, when £1 million worth of taxpayers' money was spent on the marketing campaign based on bad information and intelligence, against all advice, is the decision-maker not held to account? Why, when at least 13 women are murdered and many more attacked, are those in charge not held to account? And I mean really held to account. And I'm talking here about the senior officers making those decisions, not the junior officers. As in my experience, the shit always rolls downhill and it shouldn't. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go to? What do you need to face the day? Now for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup and my amazing sponsor Thrive Cosmetics has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean skin loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger, and healthier-looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 10% off your first order. Those in charge should face the music, don't you think? Why do women's lives not matter? What if it were men being killed? I wonder what this inquiry would have looked like if men were being wiped off the face of the earth. This isn't about scapegoating. It is about accountability and responsibility taking, and that's important in my opinion. Women's lies were what was at stake here, and remember when Assistant Chief Constable Oldfield said that there would be other, in inverted commas, pawns lost before he caught the killer. He dehumanised the women, and wrong decisions were made with grave consequence, and there needs to be accountability, and this to me is a major problem still, present day in policing. Rarely, if ever, does anyone lose their job. And people lose their jobs for a lot less in other industries. Okay, so that was the mindset he went into the Byford report and inquiry with. And I thought it important that you hear it from his mouth and remember in the context that the Home Secretary decided against a public inquiry to ensure the so-called lessons were learned, and then they never published the report And I suspect that they just hoped the public interest would die down over time. So next, I'm going to break down the interviews of PS, as these are really important to understand. And so I spent time looking at this section of the report in particular. And what I found was confounding. So remember that there were two Manningham offences in 1969, the attack on the unnamed prostitute and P.S.'s arrest for going equipped with a hammer three weeks later. And of course, that was classified as a going equipped for theft offence. Now, in reality, he was out on the street with a hammer and a knife and his car was left running on the street and the officers suspected he was going to harm someone, which he later said was his intention. Well, Lord Byford didn't include these two offences when he talked about the nine interviews and potential opportunities to stop him. And I'm including them as I believe they're really important and should not be airbrushed out of the narrative. Next that we know about and which was included as a start point in the Byford report was that PS was arrested on the 15th of October, 1975 for theft of tyres by Constable Sutcliffe from West Yorkshire Police. Yes, that was his name. Again, no relation, I believe. P.S. was a tyre fitter at the time at Common Road Tyres Limited. Straight away, he admitted to the theft and showed the officer the tyres that were in his car, and he was charged and fined £25. Notably, he killed Wilma McCann 15 days later. And as yet, the attacks on Anna Rogowski, Tracy Brown and Olive Smelt had not yet been linked. That was a major problem. On November second, 1977, P.S. was interviewed at home by Detective Constable Howard of Greater Manchester Police and an unnamed West Yorkshire police officer regarding the £5 note inquiry. Sonia was also present. P.S. said that he was at home the night Jean Jordan was attacked and killed. P.S. also said that he didn't have a car. Sonia agreed he was at home that night and she didn't say that he later went out to drop off relatives and that he was gone for a long time. Now, Lord Byford's report stated that he had no criticism of this interview. But remember here, they didn't check the fact that he did actually have a car, and nor did they probe his alibi any further. They just accepted what his wife said. On the 8th of November 1977, P.S. was interviewed again. This time, a decision had been made that no officer should see the same suspect and interview them twice. Therefore, it was Detective Constable Rain of Greater Manchester Police and Detective Constable Smith of West Yorkshire Police who interviewed P.S. under phase two of the £5 note inquiry. Now, interestingly, there's no record of this interview, and the two officers just relayed what they could remember to the review team. Now, again, that's a big problem, the fact that there's no record. Is it that they didn't write it up, or was it that it just wasn't entered, there was the backlog and it wasn't entered onto the index cards? But they accepted his account that he was at the housewarming party and his mother also backed him up. The officers also established that he had a red Corsair and had previously owned a white one. They didn't check his tyres to see if they matched with the tyre tracks left at the scene of Irene Richardson's murder. They didn't search the house. They didn't search his boots. Remember, the boots were key as they knew the killer had a size 7 boot. It's clear that this interview was not probing in any way, and his account was just accepted. A month after this interview, P.S. attacked Marilyn Moore. He used the same car, and the same tyre tracks were left, remember? He was clearly convinced he had fooled the officers, or perhaps he just didn't care. The fourth interview took place on the 13th of August, 1978. This was triggered by the cross-area sighting of P.S.'s car. It had been clocked in the Red Light District area seven times, six times in Bradford and once in Chapeltown. He had also been sighted a further nine times in Bradford in his sunbeam rapier, but this wasn't known to the officer who went to interview him, Detective Constable Smith. Detective Constable Smith went to see him at his home. When he arrived, he was decorating the kitchen and his wife, Sonia, was present. Detective Constable Smith was briefed not to tell potential suspects about the clocking of cars in prostitute areas or about hammers being used, he was to go and find out where P.S. was on the night of the attacks. He was told to find out whether each potential suspect had a car and to check the tyres due to matching tyre marks being found at Irene Richardson, Marilyn Moore and Vera Millwood's crime scenes. Detective Constable Smith was aware that P.S. had been spoken to at least twice before and he intended to probe where he was the night Vera Millwood was murdered on the 16th and 17th of May 1978. Initially, when he asked P.S., he said that he couldn't remember his movements. He then said that he had recently bought the house at Garden Lane and that they'd been spending most of their time doing it up and rarely went out. Sonia said that he had come home from work on the 16th of May and was with her in the evening, and they both made statements to that effect. When Sonia left the room, Detective Constable Smith asked P.S. if he visited prostitutes. He said no. He asked him about P.S.'s movements in the evening without revealing his car had been clocked in red light areas and P.S. said that he would use his car to travel from work to home so he had reason to be in Bradford. Detective Constable Smith did not probe this any further. He thought the couple seemed calm and he was impressed by P.S. doing DIY at home. He didn't check the car tyres or search the house. He believed that the house had been searched before, which wasn't accurate. He didn't check the printout for the timings of when his car was sighted. Had he have done so, he could have found out it was between the hours of 8 p.m. and 12.50 a.m. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Now, this is exactly what I mentioned and talked about in previous episodes. These are the basic things that should have been done well. Just checking what time his car was sighted would have caused more reason to challenge him as he said he rarely went out at night and this was certainly not for work during those hours. Equally, the fact that he didn't check his car tyres when it's really the only forensic evidence that they had is hugely problematic and that he thought that they were, and I quote, a nice young couple. Well, that was the impression management and P.S. doing the DIY, again, cosmetic management. But of course, these officers thought that they were looking for a monster due to the moniker and what he did at those crime scenes to the women. And here was the unassuming married P.S., with his wife, supposedly a newlywed and DIY bliss. Appearances can be deceptive, and that's why interviews must always be probing in nature, despite how someone may present, and facts need to be cross-checked and corroborated. Interview 5 was on the 23rd of November 1978. Detective Constable Smith submitted his report, and his supervisor was happy with it. However, Detective Superintendent Holland was not. He noted that P.S. had two Ford Corsairs. The action to go and revisit P.S. was dated August the 19th, but he wasn't seen until the 23rd of November. So again, just that in and of itself tells you that there was no urgency. It was just seen as a matter of routine. And that's exactly what happened. Detective Constable Bradshaw attended his address with Detective Constable Smith They just saw it as a routine inquiry, and Detective Constable Bradshaw didn't even bother to get out of the car. Detective Constable Smith also made inquiries relating to where PS banked and found out it was Barclays, and it was noted that PS worked at Clark's, one of the firms on the list of the £5 note inquiry. Detective Constable Smith found out that PS had sold the Red Corsair. He then visited the new owners, but the tyres had been changed. They wrote this up, they said, but the papers were lost. Interview 6 took place on July ninth, 1979 and was conducted by Detective Constable Latchew and Detective Constable Greenwood. Between the 26th of June and the 22nd of November, P.S.'s sunbeam rapier was seen in the red light district in Bradford 36 times and twice in Chapel Town, Leeds. No action was taken, however, due to a change in policy. Now, nothing more is said about this in this section of the report, but I'm curious about who took the decision to discontinue that line of inquiry, if that were the case. By the 22nd of February 1979, the Sunbeam Rapier had been seen in Leeds and Manchester a further three times, but the connections were not made, that his previous Ford Corsair was also cited many times, and that he worked at Clark's, a firm on the list of the £5 note inquiry. Five months after P.S.'s car was sighted in Manchester, Detective Constable Andrew Lapchew and Detective Constable Greenwood went to interview him at his home address. They were unaware of the previous reports and were starting from scratch due to the triple area sightings. Now, as I said before, in a previous episode, they spent two hours with P.S. and Sonia. So here I'll cover what's new and what's noteworthy. When Detective Constable Latchew asked if he used prostitutes when Sonia had left the room, he said, and I quote, that he had no need for that sort of woman. He was calm throughout and came up with answers for all of the sightings. He said he was going between home and work, and one time that he was going to a nightclub with Sonia in Leeds, but he denied being in Manchester, despite the car being sighted there. He had sold the sunbeam rapier and Detective Constable Latchew tracked down the new owners and requested the car be ready to be searched. But this was not actioned because we know Detective Superintendent Holland put the kibosh on any further lines of investigation involving P.S. Remember, Detective Constable Latchew and Greenwood were unhappy with the interview and they then went to his place of work, Clark's, where they were told that he was, an in inverted commas, a model worker. And at that time, they didn't know about the £5 note inquiry. Well, they wrote up their report stating that they were unhappy with the interview as A, he had no alibi, B, he denied being in Manchester. And unfortunately, the rest of the Byford report with the details of Detective Constable Latchew and Detective Constable Greenwood's concerns have not been published, along with the rest of the interviews that are not on the Home Office website. And so to my count, That's another eight pages that weren't published, pages 77 to 83. And I'm curious as to why not. And so I've submitted another Freedom of Information Act request to see if the Home Office will share them with me. What I do know is that no further actions were documented from the interview following Detective Superintendent Holland's reading of the report. And then the Latchew report just simply disappeared. So back to the missing pages. It seems to me that it's not only the six pages about the descriptions and other offences that the Home Office didn't publish. They also held back the other interviews conducted with PS. And having researched this further, I did find some information about the other four interviews with PS after Detective Constable Latchu and Greenwood's interview, and I've covered a little bit about it in a previous episode, but I found nothing more on the Latchu report, and the interview details that I did find are rather scant. Now, this doesn't bode well for transparency and public confidence and the so-called ethos of learning the lessons, I have to say. Why would they not publish these pages? What was contained within them? So much for learning the lessons, hey? It feels more akin to selecting those that which are okay and the easier ones, but covering up those that are more problematic. And the optics of this just don't look good. Well, that's my read of the situation. And I may be wrong, of course, but why not publish it in its entirety in the first place? And then when you publish it, leave key pages out. Okay. so here's a quick reminder about the other interviews to give you some further background context. Interview seven was undertaken by Detective Constable Vickerman and Detective Constable Elland. They interviewed P.S. on the 23rd of October 1979 They were following up on his sunbeam rapier that was clocked 36 times in the red light areas. They didn't know about the Latchew report, however. They took handwriting samples, and apparently he was eliminated. Now, I don't know how or by what means. Perhaps it's in those missing pages. Interview 8 was conducted by Detective Sergeant Boot and Detective Constable Bell on the 13th of January 1980. You'll recall from when I talked about this in a previous episode that this was a follow-up as part of the £5 note inquiry. Again, the two detectives didn't know about the Latchy report. They asked P.S. about his work and also for an alibi for the night of the murder of Barbara Leach four months prior, but he was unable to provide one. The officers searched the house, as well as examining his boots and the tools in his garage. Due to a failure in the incident room indexing, Either through missing or misplaced cards, the officers were unaware of PS's more recent interviews and only aware of his interviews in the previous five-pound note inquiries. When PS stated that he had provided a handwriting sample in a previous interview, it surprised the officers, who would later check with the incident room. This recheck of the index would eventually result in the finding of some interview documents conducted during the red-light monitoring, but not the LatChu report. Of the 241 suspects that were to be interviewed from the original £5 note investigation, only seven had been flagged as having any additional information in the index. It was later discovered that P.S. was one of the 18 others who should have fallen into this category, but who had been missed in the initial search of the index. Interview 9 took place on the 30th of January 1980 and was undertaken by Detective Sergeant McAllister and Detective Constable McCrone. They visited P.S. at Kirkstall Forge Engineering Works in Leeds whilst he loaded his lorry. P.S. was again asked and explained about his car movements through the red light districts and told them that he was at home at the time of Barbara Leach's murder and that his wife would confirm this. The two officers also searched the cab of P.S.'s lorry. Their report would also claim that they searched P.S.'s home and car, but this had not been done and his boots were not looked at either. He later said that he was wearing the boots that he had worn when he killed Josephine Whitaker. P.S. later said that the officers had a picture of the boot print, and yet they didn't ask to see his. He said that they couldn't see what was right in front of their eyes. Astounding, really. Further inquiries were requested by the officers. And Interview 10 was conducted by Detective Constable Jackson and Detective Constable Harrison. They interviewed P.S. on the 7th of February 1980 at his workplace, Clark's. An incident room inspector wasn't happy with the action report from the previous interviews, and so he reactioned a more in-depth interview to be conducted, particularly regarding P.S.'s vehicles, his vehicle sightings in the red light districts, and his alibis. If only they had read the Latchew report, which mysteriously disappeared after Detective Superintendent Holland read it. P.S. gave alibis for some of his car sightings as well as an alibi that he was at home on the night of Josephine Whittaker's murder, which again he said Sonia would confirm. Number 11 was when P.S. was arrested for a drink driving offence in Manningham on the 25th of June 1980. The two officers, Police Constable Doran and Police Constable Melia, had the presence of mind to call up the incident room given the area, and they were told that P.S. had been eliminated. Again, I cannot tell you how and by what means, and I suspect it's in the missing pages. Number 12 was when P.S. was arrested in his car with Olivia Reavers on the 2nd of January 1981 by South Yorkshire police officers Sergeant Bob Ring and Police Constable Robert Hydes, and when he was then interviewed on January the 3rd, 1981, and he finally confessed to some of the offences. Again, I'm saying some of the offences that he committed, as I know that there are others, and I'm going to come back to those. Some are detailed in the Byford report, and others are not. And so, as I said before, my count is 14, if the two 1969 Manningham offences that P.S. was arrested, interviewed, and respectively cautioned and charged with are included. So that's 14 opportunities. And I have no idea why the Byford report leaves out the first two opportunities to deal with P.S. appropriately. In essence, it creates a false narrative. This is a glaring omission, and again it shows that if violent and abusive men are left unchecked and not held to account, they carry on and escalate their behaviour. There must be real-life consequences for perpetrators, or the message is, just carry on. It's really not rocket science, yet male violence is excused time and time again. So it's clear here there are individual failures, but collectively they are significant, and those collective failures meant that P.S. escaped further investigation when he was named as a prime suspect by Detective Constable Andrew Latchu in his report to his superiors in the summer of 1979. Detective Constable Latchu was distraught when he found out that it was P.S. who had been arrested. He said this. You can imagine how I felt. I was absolutely stunned. I was totally gutted because I remembered interviewing the man, I remembered my suspicions, my colleagues' suspicions and what we'd written about him. And I thought what might have been? What well, things could have been so different. Not for my own personal satisfaction, but for the relatives of those victims. Detective Constable Latchew passed away last year, sadly, in 2020. Now, what I do want to tell you is that rather than him being celebrated for the work that he did, he was ostracised in force and some made life very difficult for him. That speaks volumes about the policing culture. I believe that he did his best. When you know and understand the culture, particularly at that time, Detective Superintendent Holland was not someone to rail against or to be trifled with. You heard Sharon Ball describe him as Brusson, amongst other things, in episode 13, and I am going to talk about him some more, along with some of the other senior officers in an upcoming episode, as it's important that you understand who some of these senior leaders were. However, another important detail I learned from the Byford report was that Chief Superintendent Gilrain was placed in overall command of the whole investigation on the 20th of December 1979, months after Assistant Chief Constable Oldfield was taken ill and Detective Superintendent Holland was acting as his deputy. However, in the preceding months that Detective Chief Superintendent Gilrain was the SIO, the Senior Investigating Officer, in Barbara Leach's murder, it was discovered that Assistant Chief Constable Oldfield was giving Detective Superintendent Holland instructions from his sickbed, and a special notice was put out to all forces with directives to eliminate suspects on accent alone. That special notice was disseminated on Detective Superintendent Holland's authority. However, Detective Chief Superintendent Gilrain was not consulted about it prior to publication. Now that's extraordinary to me, and it gives an insight into the culture, and the Byford report does talk about personality clashes and rivalries between officers. And this also talks to how tight Detective Superintendent Holland and Assistant Chief Constable Oldfield were More on this in a future episode. Other criticisms included accepting alibis from relatives, not pursuing the tire print inquiry or the triple sightings or the £5 note inquiry until much later, as well as the size 7 boot print and the photo fits from the surviving victims. And so that brings us to my FOIA, which resulted in four pages being released to me under the heading Description of Suspects, Photo Fits and Other Assaults. This, as I said, was one of the key sections I really wanted to learn more about. And so I mentioned that they didn't release all the pages that I requested. And what's now clear to me from my analysis is that what was referred to as figure 10 and figure 11 in the report are the pages that were adapted. Now, I believe that figure 10 details the photo fits by the seven assault victims that PS admitted to attacking, as well as the 13 attacks on the victims which he's believed to be responsible for. And I believe figure 11 details those 13 other offences. Now, I suspect that the Home Office didn't want to name the 13 women, which I can understand if the victims have said that they don't wish to be named. But of course, PS is now dead and so he won't ever be prosecuted for these cases. So let me tell you about what new information I've learned from the pages that were released to me. Firstly, they only realized that there was a series of link crimes after Emily Jackson was killed, three months after Wilmer, and then they believed the same perpetrator killed Irene Richardson and Patricia Tina Atkinson. But at this stage, they had very narrow criteria for linking, which included the victim was a prostitute, being hit over the head with a hammer, clothing disarranged to expose body, and stab wounds or slash wounds inflicted on the body. Now, they extended the criteria to then include Jane McDonald, but they didn't include Marcella Claxton, Maureen Long or Marilyn Moore because stabbing didn't occur in these cases, nor did they include Yvonne Pearson. However, after Yvonne Pearson's body was found, Detective Chief Superintendent Damali conducted an internal review. His terms of reference was the following to examine all reported attacks on women in general and prostitutes and endeavour to find any common link or pattern and formulate any new and profitable line of inquiry. Well, he also put out a special notice to surrounding forces asking for other similar offences. Well, if the criteria I read out was used, that's a major problem. But they did receive some cases and crime files which were assessed and victims, witnesses and investigating officers in some of the cases were interviewed. They then put them on a large wall chart and selected offences were then discussed with Assistant Chief Constable Oldfield and other senior detectives. Finally, a special notice and wall chart were produced and circulated to police forces in the country. Now, apparently at the time of the Byford report, that research was no longer available, which strikes me as very odd, quite frankly, as it was only a few months later. So what happened to it? Another mystery... However, officers were interviewed and they said that 21 offences were then reduced to 14 and those 14 included the following. Anna Rogolsky, Olive Smelt, Wilma McCann, Jean Harrison, now that's the Manchester offence that I've talked about, Emily Jackson, Irene Richardson, Patricia Tina Atkinson, Jane MacDonald, Maureen Long, Jean Jordan, Marilyn Moore, Yvonne Pearson, Helen Richter and Vera Millwood. And of the 14 crimes, 10 were in red in special notices and four were in black. Now, the four in black were included with less confidence, and they were Jean Harrison, Maureen Long, Marilyn Moore and Yvonne Pearson. Well, this highlighted that there was an attempt at linking other offences, and it at least shows that they were thinking about it. However, what I can tell you is that the criteria was again applied too narrowly, so that other similar assaults where good suspect descriptions and photo fits were available, but not included. The narrow criteria was hugely problematic. This is what the review team used. Wounds to the head caused by a hammer. Wounds to the body and abdomen caused by a knife and or star-shaped instrument. And they kept plugging away along the lines that the victims were prostitutes, which comes up repeatedly. The fact that all the criteria needed to be satisfied is also hugely problematic, particularly as offenders don't always complete their attacks for many reasons, as I've previously discussed. Well, a later review by Superintendent Chatsworth in 1980 identified even more restrictive criteria, which included blows to the head with a hammer of diameter 1.2 to 1.1 inches, plus or minus 5%, attack on the body with some other stabbing, mutilating instrument, Displacement of the brazier to give access to breasts. lowering of knickers, tights, to pubic hair level. Brackets, in many instances vulva remains covered by crotch of garment precluding penetration. Close bracket. Movement of the body after the initial attack, before the infliction of further injuries, frequently to the trunk. The reluctance of the assailant to stab through clothing. Assailants return to the body to inflict further injuries or secrete it. These criteria are highly problematic. It should be a and or and not a and, and, and. Now, remember my criteria I put together in a previous episode. Victim, lone female. Time of attack, at night under the cover of darkness. MO, approached by male in a car or on foot, engaged in conversation, hit over back of head. And or knife used, nothing stolen. Geography, Leeds, Bradford, Manchester and surrounding areas. Description, white male, dark hair, beard and moustache, softly spoken, local accent. That's the sort of criteria that I would expect. The measurements of the hammer attack are so specific, unreasonably so, and only in one offence was it known that he went back to the scene. But it does reveal to me that they knew he was pulling down the women's trousers or pulling up their skirts after hitting them over the back of the head, revealing their vaginas and exposing their breasts. So why did they think he was doing this? They didn't seem to grasp the fact that he was masturbating and revealing the breast and vagina point to a sexual motivation, which is confounding to me. In page 51 of the Byford report, one of the missing pages released to me, it was noted that, and I quote, there appeared to be an unwillingness to include additional cases in the series. And there were six cases identified that are blanked out. One of those cases that I can work out is most likely Am as it states that she saw him beforehand sitting in his sunbeam rapier car prior to the attack. They did not include Marguerite Walls or Dr. Apagia Bandera. And interestingly, just a side note, throughout the Biford report, Dr. Apagia is not titled as a doctor. And they didn't include these attacks due to strangulation being used. But really, what's the likelihood of two men going around hitting women over the back of the head in the same geographic areas, as both of them had head injuries? And so I go back to the fact that they were reluctant to include other offences. That's what I wondered about when I first started analysing this case. And I was curious about whether it was a conscious decision. Now it's my opinion that it was a conscious decision. And this restrictive criteria points to that, along with the fact that these offences are obviously linked, given how rare that they are, and twinned also with the fact that officers said that they were told not to include offences by Chief Constable Gregory, despite them believing that they were linked. And so here's a reminder. Police so overwhelmed, one officer now retired, told me she's certain all of the victims were never identified. I'm certain there were other victims. Absolutely positive. I myself interviewed one. But the Chief Constable, Mr Gregory, said that we had enough on our plate and it would not be recognised as a attack. Therefore, it's when you join all these pieces of disparate information together that a picture emerges. A picture where there were many other potential opportunities to catch PS that were missed. And that's unforgivable in my opinion, as more and more women were killed and seriously harmed as a direct consequence. The Byford report stated that if they had just put all the photo fits together from surviving victims of the hammer attacks, they would have been left with an inescapable conclusion that the man involved was dark haired with a beard and moustache and they would have learned that he had a local accent and that there was one man attacking unaccompanied women, their words, from 1976 onwards. It's always about doing the simple things well, in my opinion. And this was a basic line of inquiry that should have been identified and prioritised. And I have much more to say about that. And the date the Biford report specified was from 1976 onwards, which is not strictly accurate. If they had linked key offences far earlier, they would have seen the same face jumping out at them. And I'm going to talk about that and other information that was contained in the missing pages released as part of my FOIA request in the next episode. So stay tuned and join me back in the intelligence cell to find out more. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced, and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios.